This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. In a world in which the consumer market is increasingly defined by data, John Phelan assists companies with enhancing their social capital, the trust that consumers place in their brand. Over a diverse and impressive career, beginning with research posts at Stanford, Phelan has continually refined his understanding of data, how to intelligently identify the important data, and how to gain insight from it. Today, Argus Insights, which he founded in 2009, leverages agile analytics to deliver powerful social influencing, and Phelan is also active in teaching at the Nueva School, providing students with insight into a diverse range of technology, data, and commerce-related topics, as well as the intersection between them. Ledge sat down with John for this fascinating chat with a data expert who is the very heart of modern business at his fingertips. John, thanks for joining us. Really uh, cool to have you on today. Great. Thanks, Lloyd. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Can you give, you know, your quick background story, a couple minutes about you and, and your work? I, I've seen your resume. It, it could go on for many, many minutes. So maybe you have to focus here. I'll give you I'll give you the short and sweet version. So uh, uh, the passion that drives me throughout the tortured path of my uh, career has been how to measure things that most people think are impossible whether it's trying to measure missile launches when I did intelligence work in the Air Force or measure the impact of design on corporate performance during my piled higher and deeper days at Stanford or trying to instrument the entire consumer market and the work I did at Argus Insights. It's all been around, how do I find that lever of metrics that helps drive people towards taking action that improves whatever the context is, business or otherwise? All right, so let's get in there. How'd you do it? <laughs> Very carefully. No, I think it's 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 interesting when one of the things I've seen across the different contexts I've worked in is that a lot of people think that if you have all the data, that's all you need to do. Uh, and what I've seen time and time again is that actually figuring out what the right data is, is actually more important. In many cases, it ends up being less than you think. And it's more around how do you tease out the pieces around the outside. Uh, for example, uh, one of the things we're able to do at Argus Insights was beat Wall Street estimates of iPhone sales almost every quarter for about five years running. And all based on just using the consumer reviews of iPhones across the world. So you were able to draw in tons of data, but find the right data. You know, I, I think that story happens a lot. I mean, everybody I talk to and, you know, it used to be big data. Now it's data science and it's machine learning and it's AI. And, you know, really what we're talking about here is, um, you know, 80% or 90%, like just nasty old ETL done in different ways. And then we get to be smart and we get to make machines learn and have, you know, actual intelligence or artificial intelligence, whichever kind you like, you know, so talk a little bit about that because that's the, unglamorous belly of, of data. Yeah. And I was dealing a lot with uh, text data and some very messy text data trying to figure out, is this a real human that wrote this review or this tweet, or are we dealing with another bot war? Um, one of the pieces I dug into within the IOT internet of things conversation within Twitter found that 75% of all IOT tweets came from compromised accounts. So we're looking at millions and millions of tweets about this big B2C transform, you know, transformative kind of marketplace, and most of it's fake or compromised. Most of it's fake. 
So right. and, and and fake tweets haven't come up in the news at all recently. No, so you, no, I'm sure you haven't thought about that. No, no. Uh, um, and you know, and a lot of it comes down to what's the pattern of clean, what's the pattern of dirty, and how do you squeeze the right blood from the stone? If that makes any sense, because um, there's limits to each data set you bring in about what you can pull from it. Um, I was able to use the review data to figure out why certain phones were taking off or not, as case may be. Actually, saw the Amazon Fire Phone, if you remember that beast, um, crash within three days after launch. So before the news was reporting on uh, the failure, we sort of had the canaries in the coal mine saying, this phone's terrible. Um, and knew why. Um, you know, it's battery life. It's this, that, and the other. So two months later, when Greenpeace staged a protest by writing bad reviews on the phone, it didn't actually have any impact because it's already so low anyway. But yeah, yeah, it's... So you already you're right. that. It's ETL, right? It's ETL. Mm-hmm. And then you have it cleaned up enough where you actually can do something with it. Um, and you have to be careful that you don't oversell it, right? It's it's about backtesting. It's about um, figuring out the limitations to it. Communicate that those stories in a way that the client, the user, the algorithm um, know what they're getting, right? Because that's mm-hmm. the other piece that comes into play is that you can get in deep in the data. Like, oh, and this is, look, I cleaned the data. It's beautiful. This is my wonderful clean data. And they're like, yeah, but how does this impact what we're doing at this meeting right now? And how's this going to impact next quarter? And being able to bridge those gap between what we find in the data and what it means to the enterprise is a key, key feature in all this. You have uh, extensive experience and and writing and speaking and teaching about design thinking. I got to imagine that that comes in there in that, you know, viewing the the data, you know, in a, in a context that, you know, like kind of makes sense to the user, you know, has, how have you brought that together? A lot of people don't have that shared discipline. <laughs> it's part of my schizophrenia, my uh, multiple personality disorder for lack of a better phrase. Um, I, I think it's, it's one of those things where key tenets of design thinking are, you know, how do you develop that empathy and compassion for your user and start using the words and language that they know. So that as you tell them the story of what's next, it's a story they feel they can have a starring role in. And a lot of time, data scientists kind of forget that part. We get excited about p-values and um, the annealing of our, you know, uh, convolutional neural networks. And look, look, the, the weights of the neurons haven't shifted in three decades. Yes. Uh, as opposed to what it means to the bottom line to people. And that's where that design thinking comes into play. Along with this notion of how do you create bad prototypes that you can share with clients? Um and part of that is because it's very easy from a data science standpoint to try to have everything perfect and dialed in before you share it with client. One of the things that I find is that when you show them bad prototypes, they become co-creators with you. If you show them something that's too polished and too pretty, they'll say, that's really cool. Can we change the color on that third line on the second chart, please? When that's just code for, I have no idea what you're doing. And I'm just going to comment on the things I can. Whereas if you give them something that's a little bit messier, it allows them to kind of say, ask deeper questions and kind of question even the direction that you're going with it. Um, That's another kind of place where design thinking and the data science comes together. I mean, obviously we're talking about agile and and lean and, you know, all all these things. So the supposition being then that you, you know, kind of can launch any product, even if it's not a product, it's a data result. You can launch it right. and, and deliver it in a lean and iterative fashion to involve the user, you know, kind of in the, the ownership and adoption of those final results. And part of it is, if you look at how 
the democratization of data has enabled us to have any number of tools. I can run it through uh, some model through 16 different, you know, machine learning algorithms in a matter of, of minutes. I can put together a Bayesian model. I can pull this library here and that library here and pull in data from census.gov and Twitter and all these coulds, right? The big challenge I think we face as, a, as an industry is how do we distill those to the shoulds? And that's where that piece comes into play. And by getting clients or users or vendors or partners involved in co-creating those those shoulds, yeah, you end up with a better chance of like, oh, wait, oh, that means, but that, oh my goodness, that's what's next. That's great. Yeah. And you've gone hardcore through the sort of academics to the military, to design, to business, to uh, self-employed business to back to education now, right? Is this is this like a full circle story right. that, you know, kind of back to the roots, uh, feed the next generation, you know, what, what's going on here? It's very much a give back kind of thing. So uh, I grew up in a small town in rural Arkansas, I used to raise chickens for Tyson Foods in a past life. And my parents told me, if you do your homework, you don't have to raise chickens for the rest of your life. And I said, okay, that sounds good. Uh, and had some great teachers that encouraged me along the way. So I got a special visa to leave the state when I was in high school and went to MIT for undergrad, um, did graduate work at Stanford and sort of got stuck in the Valley. Um, and, uh, along the way I got the teaching bug very early on when I was in high school, I taught fifth grade science. And so any chance I've had a chance to get into the classroom, my last job in the air force was teaching at the air force Academy. Uh, I t ran a program at the Stanford uh, Mechanical Engineering Department for a number of years. And so it's always been part of the threads. But now um, one of the things I started Argus Insights to do was to try to generate enough free cash flow that I could go start a school. And then I found out about the Nueva School where I'm teaching now. And I'm like, wait a minute, you already did all the work. Can I help? And so that's what I've been doing uh, for the last uh, uh, nine months. Still doing the data science stuff on the side because I can't let it go. It's it's uh, too many interesting questions to answer and too many people to try to help figure out what's real and what's not. Uh, but being back in the classroom is uh, it's a joy. It's a gift. That type of thread comes up a lot, you know, with sort of um, community-minded folks. Or you know, is it um, how do I leave time in my schedule to you know I really want to contribute to open source you know on the engineering mm -hmm. side and but you know I got to get paid mm -hmm. you know and, and I have to right. you know maintain at least something there and we have some really thoughtful engineers you know sort of go hey I'm only going to build 25 hours a week and I'm going to put 15 into my you know education or my uh, my volunteer work you know maybe talk a little bit about that balance and you know how maybe is it is it a thing that you ended up doing because you know you finally sort of got the free cash flow and you designed a system on purpose or was it something that was kind of always there that you were able to maintain it was always a little piece i've got uh two daughters a middle schooler and a high schooler and i've been kind of volunteering and helping with their um, school programs for a while a design contest at a local tech museum that my youngest has been doing for the last three years now both of them are doing so it's been a way to give back for my kids initially and then trying to broaden that impact uh, over time. And I think a key part of that overall piece is, forget which pundit said it, um, but paying yourself first, whether it's in social capital or financial capital is a critical piece. And I find for myself, my financial pursuits 
were much more balanced and much more effective as I was, if I had actually done something to help other people outside of me as well. It's, it's that mission driven piece I picked up in the air force and scouts and all those kinds of things. It's nice to have that, that mission that drives it as well. It's like, yes, I'm doing this to generate, uh, you know, pay the mortgage. Um, but I'm also doing these other things to pay the soul. Um, and I think that's critical to figure out, you know, it's not a, Every week I wall off 10 hours to do this because life doesn't work that way, especially if you're a freelancer. But it's how do you create that average, right? (laughs) Go back to the data science piece. What's my average contribution? And how do I feel about that, right? Because balance itself ends up being a dynamic. And how do you you adjust the norms? Some days work is up to 11. Some days giving back is up to 11 to use a tortured spinal tap reference. And I think it's about making sure that you put that as a big rock into your schedule, into your life first. Um, and wallow in it, enjoy it. It's like, I'm here because I want to be, this is great. And whether it's contributing to an open source uh, project, whether it's volunteering at a local school to help stimulate the next generation to go, wait, you mean I can be an engineer? Yep. Cause that's part of what got me started. I was um, my last year at MIT. I was a mentor coach for the local first robotics competition team. And this was in the early days when we were still in a gym. It hadn't taken over the Georgia Dome and things like that. And um, still in a gym in Nashville, New Hampshire. Wow. Anyway, uh, I got a chance to stimulate and spark and give active permission to these high school students from inner city Boston. But for some of them, it's too late. They were seniors. Oh, this is so cool. I want to do this. What's your GPA? And so that's what sparked a lifelong kind of how do I start reaching kids earlier and having an impact earlier and give them that active permission. No, you can do this. Yeah. It's, it's hard, but you know, that's part of it. It's part of the joy of it is climbing those learning curves together with other people. And because together you can do cool things. Right. So yeah. And talk about those learning curves. You know, they're uh, one of the things that always is super popular in this show here is, you know, just to like blazing, amazing failures that, you know, became the, the Phoenix of the future successes. You know, what, what are the speed bumps, you know, along the way that it, it doesn't read like a perfect LinkedIn yeah. profile, you know, when you get to the real story, right? <laughs> no, that's very true. Things like, uh, um, oh, not having the right uh, back end pieces together and having a, an intern wipe the entire production database because he initialized a new uh, Ruby on Rails and just said, yeah, let's just migrate the DB. What that was pointing... What you just did what? But we had backups for our backups for our backups. So failures along the way, there's more speed bumps that I can go into things like, um, I still haven't figured out my, uh, sales team merit badge. I've, I've tried it four or five times and fell significantly on that piece. Um, and, uh, learning lessons around, um, how, how, uh, selling bad news doesn't work very well, especially when you're trying to sell technology to marketing folks. What do you mean that the hundreds of thousands of dollars we spent on ad campaigns the last six months have not moved the needle from a mindshare standpoint at all? Yep. Can you not tell my boss? Sure. Um, and so I, I think the biggest thing I've extracted from the last several years of, of uh, trying to spend data into, into gold or at least insights is finding a way to sell money. Um, and it's less about cost savings, it's more about on the revenue side. If you can find ways to help companies, 
you know, sell money. That's a beautiful thing. Talk, talk more about that. What are selling money? I'd, I'd like to buy money. Yeah. <laughs> that's what Wall Street does a great job. If you give us a little bit of money, we'll turn it into bigger money. Well, what's the risk? Oh, let's not talk about probabilities. Um, but I found that for on the Argus side, the, the things with the biggest impact, the things where, um, uh, where we were able to really move the needle for clients, created the case studies and the stories and the business model that actually helped. For example, um, we helped Best Buy uh, renegotiate uh, one of their vendor contracts with a major tablet manufacturer. They were getting huge returns, huge returns. Anything that wasn't an iPad was like, uh, that was cool, but take it back. And they had no idea why. We were able to dig into the review data and pull out what was driving people away and what was driving the returns. And it turns out, in all the ads for this new tablet that wasn't an iPad, the company was promising, you could do this and you could see pictures and videos and games. And oh my goodness, all your content from your computer comes into this tablet and it's portable and beautiful. And imagine your life with this new device and you get it and you buy it and you bring it home and you go to connect it to your computer and they didn't include a cable. In order to save their overall bomb costs, they had made the USB cable to connect to the computer an accessory. <laughs> they had to buy separate. So they box it back up, take it back to Best Buy, and say, take this on an iPad. And um, Best Buy did two things. They went through and changed the way the blue shirts interact with customers. Oh, you want that one? Here, get this cable too. Returns dropped. Uh, and two, they went back to the vendor and said, hey, we have all these return tablets, take them back. Oh, uh, no, no, we're not doing that. No, here's the evidence where you actually messed up. Okay, we'll take them back. So for a small project, Best Buy literally saved millions and millions of dollars. Their return on that investment was 2,000%. I mean, who knows? It was uh, significant. And it was one of those things where it sold money. And so whenever project work can be that lever that drives new opportunities, uh, or, or new revenues to a client, that's that's a beautiful thing. And it's how you tell that story, right? Because the promise of saving money is tough because no one ever gets rewarded for the bad things they avoided. Right? It's, it's no, no CEO who says, well, huh, this quarter was a great quarter. We didn't go bankrupt. That's your job. We don't get rewarded for those things. We get rewarded for the new things. And so if there's a way to mix those pieces together where it's some prevention but a whole lot of, of uh, a new as well, then you've earned that right to do that again for the company over and over. So you just told me that story and I've been in the sales seat for about a decade and that sounds like pretty good sale to me. So I don't know how you filled out of your, your merit badge, but. Oh, it, it's uh, it comes back to, um, yeah, that's a good question. When I try to scale beyond myself, that's been the hard part, right? Um, you know, that's a lot of times sales, especially relationship-based sales on the enterprise side, it's a heart to minds campaign. And I have this, again, going back to my multiple personality disorder, I can get technical, but I can also get in, empathetic with the customer in a way to kind of, well, yeah, we can, well, let me, let me think about how we twist that. Yeah, we can find that data. Sure. We had a, the Autonomous Vehicle Alliance was trying to figure out how first time autonomous Uber riders were feeling about the experience. I'm like, well, let me, we can do that. I can think of three different ways we can get the data and do, yeah, yeah, and it's about this scope close the deal. Whenever I try to enable someone else to do that without that schizophrenia, that right left brain meld, it was much difficult. But um, yeah, we've actually found the, the writers and 
sort of scarily track them in Instagram to figure out what else they cared about. And yeah, don't, <laughs> don't share too much on Instagram. It's creepy what we could do. Um, <laughs> noted, noted. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, okay. we got an engineering audience here, you know, and, and yet that right. I, I can tell you just every single time I talk to anybody in any type of technical leadership role, it's empathy, 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 empathy. So, you know, I, I was a software engineer when it was okay to be in the basement and all the lights were off and 12 right. of us were banging on code. And I mean, we didn't want to talk to the customer and nobody wanted to let us near the customer. Oh. And I mean, that, that man, in the last 20 years, right. that has changed a lot, you know, so maybe just like finish us up here with some advice on developing that secondary character. Cause I mean, you're a highly credible engineer and you have this other, you know, flip side of the personality, um, how and where, and, and, you know, how do people do the actual practical work to, to make that happen? That's a good question. Cause it, I mean, the challenge that we have as engineers is that we're really good at designing for two people, ourselves and mom. Because mom loves everything we do, right? And I took a page out of uh, the guy who started doing design work at MIT a thousand years ago that Stanford poached and started the whole design thinking movement back in the 50s, John Arnold. He had the same issue with his engineering students. So he had them design for aliens from Arcturus 6 as a way to force them out of their own mindset. And anything that causes you to force yourself out of the mindset is good. Uh, you don't have to design for aliens, uh, though I do find that leveraging personas and interviews or even observations are really important um, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, forget the name of the company, but there's a medical device company that every time the design team meets, they have an empty chair with a picture of one of their patients there. That way, every time they're like, oh, if we do this, we can cut cost. They look at the patient and say, wait, is that the right thing for Bob over there? Will Bob survive more or less? And I think the same can come true for uh, engineers and developers working on projects is how do you bring the persona of your customer involved in what you're doing? And not just that demographics. I think demographics is um, can be a path to pain for engineers. I think you have to understand the psychographic piece. What, what matters to them? What story do they want to have a starring role in? That becomes really important. Even if it's some kind of middleware, that eventually is going to waterfall to a real human who you're going to make a hero. That kind of hero-based design uh, becomes really important. Think of yourself as, as Q to James Bond. What new gadget's going to save the day? And how do I understand my Bond? Okay, that could be tortured from a pun standpoint. My Bond with Bond um, well enough to then figure out what characteristics, what situations, what scenarios, what stories to go back to an agile point of view that can enable that. Because without that persona anchor, it's very easy to fool ourselves the same way that entrepreneurs fool themselves in Excel spreadsheets. Look, it's going up. We can fool ourselves with personas around. Oh, yeah, that's real. But the more you can get real people engaged and make that into a composite persona um, that you can leverage, because then you can start asking questions. It's not in a, it seems a little creepy from the outside. Why are you talking to a piece of paper? But that conversation, that dialogue, real or imagined, helps anchor you to make sure that every decision you're making from a design standpoint ties back to making that person you Great insights. John, thanks so much. It was really, really cool to listen to your story and, and to have you on. Thanks, Lance. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.
Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.